Welcome back to the 187th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including a new proposal for term limits on the bureaucrats inside the D.C. administrations, a report talking about how Belarus may be complicit in taking some of the Ukrainian children and relocating them to Russia, and a final article talking about Sam Altman, how he's been fired as the CEO of OpenAI. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So Vivek Ramaswamy said, hey, we're going to get rid of a, what, 75% of the bureaucratic state by the time he's out of office, 50 state within the 50% of that within the first term, I believe is what he was getting at. And he said, okay, we're just going to choose a random uh, social security you know, number. Is it going to be even or is it going to be odd? If it's even, we'll keep it. If it's odd, we're going to get rid of it. And then the person associated with that social security number, get out of the bureaucracy. Now, that you know, interesting proposal. I feel like you'll probably disproportionately call certain, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, departments rather than others. But there's a more moderate solution that is, you know, having term limits on them. So what do you think about that? We're going to go into it a little bit more with our first article, like I was talking about. But just, you know, on on the surface, maybe you have a different interpretation. Maybe you have a way that that could work. Or maybe you're like, no, that's that's really, really stupid. Yeah, let me know. Throw it down in the comment sections. I'd love to hear what everybody has to say. All right. So the first article, like we were talking about, it comes from National Review. And the headline reads... GOP Senator proposes a bill to impose 12-year term limits on federal employees. Now, let's be clear. He's not talking about uh, senators, congressmen, things like that. You know, federal employees implies the people that are there on the payroll regularly, not the ones that have to get elected into their offices. And he does carve out some exceptions, and we'll get into those, but I want to read the beginning of this article so we can get an idea of where this guy is coming from. And his name is, quote, Senator Roger Marshall introduced a new bill Wednesday evening that would impose 12-year term limits on federal employees. The Tenure Evaluation and Rotation Mandate Act, uh, yeah, you can, if you listen to that, you'll figure out why they're so cleverly named but yet so weirdly named when you actually expanded out. But when it's shortened, when it's made an acronym, oh, the term act. Oh, it's so cute. Come on. Can we stop with the cutesy stuff? Just literally name it what it is. The uh, Limitation of Federal Bureaucracies Act or the Limitation Term Limits for Bureaucracies Act. Oh, there we go. We used to have just straightforward names. I mean, actually, I take that back. We had the Clayton Act, the Sherman Act. They were named after people. Now they're trying to get all cutesy with it so they can send it out to the media and be like, oh, the term act. And yeah, sure, you know, it's supposed to be so that we can actually remember what's going on, you know, make sure it sticks in the populace's mind. But it's just, it's so stupid at this point. But I got a little bit off track there. Quote, if passed and enacted, would prevent unelected officials in executive agencies from making lifelong careers in the federal government. There are notable exceptions under the proposed legislation, however, presidential appointees, federal law enforcement officers, military service members, and Department of Defense employees are all exempt, according to the bill's text. So, you know, the military, that definitely makes sense to me. We don't want to 
have our generals only be able to be there for 12 years, their experience, their wisdom, uh, especially in military affairs, could be very, very useful. Uh, presidential appointees, I guess what they're getting at here is at the end of the day, if a president from two administrations ago had somebody and they served all eight years, do you really want to restrict that person who may be an expert in a particular area uh, to another only another four years and actually serving the country? I think that's uh, reasonable to say the least. Uh, federal law enforcement officers, once again, the wisdom, understanding the system, those connections that they've made on the ground in certain areas with people who may be likely to commit crimes or the people who actually stop crimes, the community leaders who advocate against it, like, those sort of connections, once again, I can understand. The Defense Department or Department of Defense employees are all exempt. Ah, that one, that one, I don't know. Maybe you could make you could make a same or similar argument to law enforcement that they have certain connections with uh, other agencies or they have connections with other countries or different uh, private sector actors or they're they bring wisdom like the military service members. I don't know. I just feel like it's not necessarily important to carve that out because although our defense posture should be pretty similar across administrations, hey, we will defend the nation, how we go about doing that I think should be different. I feel as though fresh blood is needed, otherwise there will be entrenchment. So I think there could be an argument there, even though that argument could apply to all the other places that I had mentioned and given reasons for. I just I was a little bit more skeptical when I read Department of Defense. But, you know, if I was able to sit down with the senator, maybe he could explain it a little bit better because the article really doesn't go into it that much more. But it's an interesting proposal, no doubt about that. Quote, the term act accounts for the current federal employees who serve in one or more positions during their tenure, tenure prohibiting them from serving past 12 years in most cases. So what he's saying here is if somebody has served out 11 years in the federal government, then when this goes into action, they basically have one year left. Now, it's a little bit more hazy than that. What they're actually saying is, okay, hey, if you have served nine years, then we're going to allow you three years to figure it out until 12. And if you've served you know, 11 years and six months, then we're going to give you a little bit more time to figure it out, but we're going to have to cut you from the payroll kind of thing, which I feel like you know, if you're going to do this and you're going to completely derail the people's careers who have been working in the government for so long, at least you're gracious enough to give them a little bit of time to figure it out, to find a a private sector job, or maybe start their own nonprofit, start their own firm somewhere. I mean, hey, at the end of the day, when you're calling the workforce, but yet you're still giving a little bit of time to be generous, I, I respect that. You know, some ideologues would just straight up say, no, hey, uh, I'm sorry, but we're cutting the bureaucracy. You're part of the bureaucracy, so get on out of here. So at least there's a little bit of grace in what's going on. And there's a, another quote that I wanted to read. Quote, the bill also prohibits an employee from reaching 12 years, leaving service, and then returning to work. But if someone leaves service before the 12-year mark, they can be rehired and serve the remaining of their eligible term. Senator Eric Schmidt, co-sponsor of the bill with Marshall, said, quote, for too long, Washington, D.C. has continued the status quo to the detriment of hardworking Americans. Look at where we are today, $33 trillion in debt and paying $900 billion in interest annually. So, I mean, what, what he's getting at, what the heart of the thing is, 
is one, as people stay with the federal government for longer, they're more likely to be promoted. They're also more likely to get more pension benefits. They're more likely to make higher wages, especially when the federal minimum wage keeps going up. So this is extra spending that may not necessarily be needed. I mean, when discussing the people who are the veterans who have a deep understanding of how things works, maybe you could make an exemption. Maybe you could make a a rule for them that, hey, we'll have you as an outside contractor. We'll pay you a little bit of a lower fee if you're really still passionate about this work. But at the end of the day, we need to get fresh blood in there. Fresh blood who isn't expecting high paychecks also because we need to cut down on our spending. And the fresh blood that's willing to bring a new perspective to how things work. That's exactly what is bundled up in this statement. It sounds like he's just talking about budgets, but no, he's also talking about the status quo. The status quo ante, the way things have been, the way things move in the past, the flow of the river does not have to remain the same. We can change where it goes. Even if it, you know, it's a little bit painful, it's going to take a little bit of investment in a little bit of time. Now, let's be realistic. Is this going to make it through the Senate? No, it's probably not going to make it through the Senate. It could make it through the House with the state of the House right now. But even then, I find it hard to believe. Purely because guess who gives policy proposals? Guess who gives recommendations? Guess who these senators and congressmen have to work with on a daily basis? The bureaucrats that would be directly affected by this. And I don't care if you're a small government person or a big government person. Even if you believe in small government and you may be willing to bite the bullet on this one, you're not going to take it easily. You're not going to want to lose your job and have to go searching for another one. I mean, there, there are a few people that would be able to do that. There are a few people that believe in that principle so much they would. But a lot of people know they like their careers. They like where everything's panning out for them. They love the work they do. And no matter how much they want to reduce the size of the government, they're going to say, hey, can we cut the other department first? And they're worried about their own self-interest. So they're going to be, I don't want to say pressuring, because they're not like lobbyists. They don't have the most money in the world to give out. But they're definitely going to make their opinion heard, and they're going to try to push back on this. And I don't see this passing anytime soon, especially because certain people on the Democratic side would argue that, well, the bureaucracy is actually how the government stays consistent in between administrations. If you have the same people in those departments, even though the president has changed, it allows for coherent policy, or at least for the most part, coherent policy. And it allows for stability among the chaos that is the switching of parties every four or eight years that can be perceived from you know the outside view as something that's not necessarily the best part of democracy. But, you know, I love it. I think we all love the fact that we have the ability to change things up, that we can redecorate the house, that we can change how things look and how things end up coming to affect us every four to eight years. But when trying to project stability, especially in economic terms, in security terms, national defense terms, other countries probably look at that like, whoa, you know, Putin or Xi are like, wait, hold on. You guys switch every 48 years? No, no, no. We're going to be in here for life, baby. We're going to make sure things are consistent under us. We're going to make sure that our allies know that the policy isn't changing drastically anytime soon so that we they know it's a good place to invest. It's a good time to make deals because they know they're going to be dealing with me in the future. So when you have these employees that stay around for a long time there could be an argument made well there's a familiarity 
well, if the you know people on at the State Department, if they are negotiating with their counterparts in Russia, and you have an administrator who's been there for twenty years, and another administrator who's been there for thirty, and they have some sort of working relationship and provides a level of stability. So that's an argument that could be made from the Democratic side about the importance of certain layers of the bureaucracy. That's why I think it will not make it past the Senate, but maybe, just maybe I'm being cynical. You know, it's one of those days where maybe you've caught me on a cynical streak, or maybe I'm a little bit hopeful underneath. But at the end of the day, I I think it's going to be hard to get through, especially when it directly affects the interest of the people in Washington. But that's enough on that one. Let's jump to our next article, which is a little bit more disturbing, honestly. But I saw it, and I, I absolutely had to talk about it. So it's an article from NPR, and the headline reads, A news report says Belarus has assisted Russia in abducting Ukrainian children. Now, of course, it's NPR, so this is a transcript from a audio format, so it's a little bit of a back and forth, and I'm going to jump in between things, but I'm going to make sure to try to have the question and answer in the same quote if I can. So... We know that this Ukraine war has displaced thousands upon thousands of people and children. And we know that many people, children, women, men have been killed as a direct effect of the war or as side effects of the war of being displaced and not having the resources in order to tend for yourself or your family. But this is the next level. This isn't just, oh, yeah, it's an accident of war, it's a byproduct. This is, oh no, we're going to actually take these Ukrainian children in and then we're going to ship them off to Russia, which is absolutely horrific. Quote, thousands of Ukrainian children have been deported to Russia since the war in Ukraine began almost two years ago. A new report now says Russia's ally and neighbor Belarus is participating in these operations. NPR's Michael Kellen reports that the U.S. is vowing to hold anyone involved accountable. So here's the first byline. Quote, Yale researcher Nathan Raymond says his docu- he's documented what he's called an industrial-scale pipeline of children deportation from parts of Ukraine now occupied by Russia. Uh, you know, Nate, Mr. Raymond says this is concerted. It was intentional. And it involved both Russia and Belarus working together every step of the way. So I don't, when I heard this, I I was curious or I was confused as to why. Are they purposefully trying to uh, bolster their own future population? Are they trying to punish the Ukrainians? They're trying to make it less favorable for Zelensky to go home to his people and say, we have to keep fighting this war when people are going to argue, oh, no, they're abducting our children. We need to stop this. We need to you know, have a ceasefire or you know, end the war altogether and negotiate our children back from Russia. Or are they just doing this to be malicious? I, I don't understand. I can't put myself in the headspace of Vladimir Putin or any of the people in Russia Uh, Maybe they genuinely believe that the areas that they've occupied are now Russian territory and they're trying to save the children there and make sure that they grow up in a proper Russia with a proper Russian education, a.k.a. propaganda. But I just, I don't see it. I I can't rationalize it. And there are too many crackpot ideas, too, that, you know, I would say sound crazy, but then again, we're dealing with a foreign power that hasn't exactly appeared to be the most rational in the world at some points. Now... From their perspective, it 
may be different and maybe I'm missing some of the rationality and some of their arguments, but I just don't necessarily know. <sighs> but sorry, let's get back to a quote. So this is from the uh, interviewer. Quote, Raymond, he is the executive director of the Yale School of Public Health Humanitarian Research Lab, which gets funding from the State Department. Using open resources, the group found that 2,442 children between the ages of 6 and 17 have been taken to Belarus since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began more than a year and a half ago. This is from Raymond now. The big mystery, Michelle, is this investigation is, where are those 2,442 children now? The Lushenko regime claims they've returned them to Ukraine, but we have not been able to independently verify that. And then back to the interviewer. Raymond says, Alexander Lushenko's government in Belarus and Vladimir Putin's in Russia should comply with the Geva Conventions and register the children with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Some of the children were disabled and particularly vulnerable, he says, and about a quarter of them went through some kind of military training and indoctrination. And then Raymond responds again, the organizations involved here are really startling, including two motorcycle clubs, one called the Night Valkyries, the other the Night Wolves, and also the involvement of a senior official of the Belarusian Red Cross Society and also a sim- swim club called the Dolphins. So it's obviously a full frontal effort here to get these children over into Belarus or over into Russia. And what they pointed out here is that some of the kids had, you know, injuries or they were vulnerable. So maybe you could say, hey, we're, we're trying to protect these kids. We don't want them to be a casualty of war. We're going to take them to a place where, oh, we have motorcycle clubs so they can learn to ride a motorcycle. Or, you know, we can uh, take them to the swim club or we'll take them to these humanitarian services like the Red Cross Society. And we're going to do all of this for the betterment of the children. And while they're there, you know, they may get taught or trained in one way or another, but don't don't worry, Ukraine. We'll return your citizens to you completely and perfectly fine, not indoctrinated whatsoever. So once again, it, it just feels malicious. And there could be an argument made that, well, this is coming from our point of view in the West, where anything that these countries do, especially when we're allied with Ukraine, can be perceived as evil or just because they're trying to keep them up with their education, it's called indoctrination, even though I genuinely do believe a lot of those claims. It's one of those things where maybe we're misreading the intentions. I hope that's the case. I don't genuinely believe that is the case, and I'm trying to be a little bit optimistic and shove off the cynic cloak, but hopefully that these people, you know, they have a heart, they're looking out for these kids, and they actually have you, you know, return them to Ukraine or they intend to return them to Ukraine, which I don't know why they wouldn't have if they intend to. I mean, it's not like any of these other countries are going to be less affected by the war anytime soon. I mean, except maybe Belarus. But even then, they're an ally of the Russian government. So would the Ukrainians really trust them to keep their children? Why wouldn't they just send them to Ukraine to send to a NATO ally or have their parents, you know, and I've done articles about uh, parents who have moved to other countries and then called for their kids once they got set up. So why wouldn't the Belarusians and the Russians return the children so they could do that if they really cared about them? I just, I don't know. And it's a horrifying story when you hear that children are being used as props, as tools, 
in this sort of battle, not just physical battle, but war of attrition. And if they really are being used as tools to wear down the Ukrainians saying, hey, we have some of your children. If you just give up, if you just allow us to annex these regions like we did with Crimea, then you could have your kids back. I just, it's absolutely disgusting if that is the case. And that's where my gut goes. It's it's sad that we're at this point. It is sad where we are at the point where we cannot trust a country's intentions at all. We cannot trust that they have a common love for humanity, a common respect for other people's children, and a common respect for the innocence of children who shouldn't have to deal with any of these issues unless directly confronted with them. And even then, we should try to shelter them from these things because the world is cruel and keeping them innocent and protected while we can, while still sprinkling in some reality, is the job of parents and it is also the job of society as a whole. And you could even argue humankind as a whole. So it's terrible to see. I hope more reporting comes on, out on this. We can find where some of these children went And if they did go to Belarus, we can politically pressure them, even though they're going to be closer to Russia anyway. And we can pressure Russia to let these children go. And if they have brought them back into Ukraine, I hope they get registered, found, and uh, everything goes well for the families who lost their children for a little bit. And my heart goes out to everybody in this situation in the area. All right, so then we have one last article that comes from The Verge. And the headline reads, Sam Altman fired as CEO of OpenAI. So for those of you that do not know, Sam Altman has been the one of the co-founders of OpenAI. He has been the CEO for quite some time now. He started with Elon Musk, Musk left. You know, that's a whole drama story. And it was a non-for-profit at first, but then it became a for they had a for-profit branch. And let's be clear, the board that actually got him kicked out, I believe, is from the nonprofit side rather than the for-profit side, but it's still something interesting to break down. So let's jump into the first paragraph. Quote, Sam Altman has been fired as CEO of OpenAI, the company announced on Friday. Quote, Mr. Altman's departure follows a deliberative review process by the board, which concluded that he was not was not consistently candid in his communications with the board, hindering its ability to exercise its responsibilities, the company said in its blog post. Quote, the board no longer has confidence in his abilities to continue leading open AI. So we're going to go on a little bit more. We're going to talk about some of the other things. We're going to keep reading this quote. But this part really was interesting to me. He's not conveying information to the board that doesn't allow them to do their jobs. What? So the question is either, one, what is he hiding? Or two, what does the board think they deserve to know and isn't being told? And I'm, I'm very, very interested by this one. I have no speculation whatsoever, but it's very interesting wording. It's very legalese from the board members here, and I hope to hear what Altman says a little bit later. He does seem to be a bit of a more quiet man, a little bit more of a subdued man, so maybe he won't come out and trash his previous company, but we'll see. Quote, Chief Technology Officer Maria Moratti will be the interim CEO, effective immediately. The company will be conducting a search for a permanent CEO successor. When contacted by The Verge, OpenAI's communications department declined to comment beyond the blog post. Employees of OpenAI found out about the news 
when it was announced publicly, according to multiple sources. I loved my time at OpenAI, Altman said in a post on X, formerly Twitter. It was transformative for me personally and hopefully the world a little bit. In the follow-up post, he describes the experience of this firing as, quote, sort of like reading your own eulogy while you're still alive, end quote. So, yeah. And then uh, there's also a little bit more context here. One of his uh, fellow co-founders and a board member, Greg Brockman, actually stepped down after this. He's kind of resigning in solidarity with Sam, which is, you know, we love, love to see it. And honestly, it's kind of heartwarming when you have such a good friend there that believes in the vision of you and where you were taking the company so much that they're willing to step down. And maybe there was some breaches. Maybe the board didn't like where things were going. Uh, and Greg's like, you know what? Hey, if you don't trust Sam, then I don't trust you kind of thing. Maybe. That's always a possibility. So there are a few paths going forward. There's, hey, at the end of the day, if uh, Sam Altman, he wants to keep on rolling, he could probably get hired by XAI, even though he probably won't work with Musk again. He may get hired by the DeepMinds team at Google. Maybe Microsoft actually scoops him up because he's already been working closely with them, even though I, I highly doubt that would be the case because they have uh, enough of a stake to have a board seat, I believe, I believe. But maybe not. Maybe that's in the for-profit branch rather than the non-profit branch. But maybe he'll get scooped up by one of them. Maybe he'll start another company. He already has a lot of money invested in another AI company, I believe. Let me pull up the name so I'm not completely crazy when I tell you. I believe it's called Hinge. Is it? Is it Hinge? Let me double check here. Uh, no, it is called Humane. So it's a AI pin that I believe records conversations and uh, tracks it down for you, but I could be wrong about that one. So there's also speculation as to why they're you know kicking him out. They said, oh, he's not telling us critical information. Sure, but maybe there's something else behind here, which is at the end of the day, they want to pivot. They feel like maybe Sam is too focused on safety. Maybe he's not exploiting different trends enough. Maybe he is just a person that they don't want to work with and they don't see him leading the next evolution. They got He got him to the point where ChatGPT, large language models are a lot better. But now for the next era, we need someone new to get in there. Maybe it was his idea of not pivoting to physical world AI like Tesla has been doing with their... Uh, Optimus robot or their cars with their self-driving where it's AI that can actually interpret the world around it and therefore have a game plan, a way to interact with it and work with it just like a car deciding which way to turn or sorry, when to turn safely, so on and so forth. And it seems like OpenAI, at least publicly, has been going down the large language model, the language comprehension side, and maybe there was a strategic shri- uh, shift that Sam Altman didn't want to do, or maybe the board did want him to do, or vice versa. He really wanted to push it, but the board was like, no, we're not going to do it. Maybe there's internal strife there. It will be very interesting going forward to see how all of this really comes out. And it feels it feels like the end of a very brief era, because Sam Altman became the face of AI for what, since like 2018, 2019 at OpenAI. And then especially when ChatGPT took off a year, probably a year and a little bit ago, he was the face of public large language models of AI safety, 
things of this nature. And now he is out of the company that helped, he helped co-found. And I hope him and Elon can fix some things. I know they've had uh, battles back and forth. I hope Elon's willing to hire him at, at XAI, his new AI company, or one of his AI projects. Because it seems like Sam Altman's a considerate person, very kind, very intelligent, and he's really thinking about the bigger questions about AI safety as well. And someone like him could be very important to a whole bunch of companies, and I hope that he ends up very, very well. I already gave my speculation on what could happen. I already gave my speculation on where he could go. So I'm going to leave that one. Like I said, wish him the best. All right, so let's jump to our final article that comes from Woo Global. So, you know, it's uh, practically turkey season. This will be going out on Monday, so we have another three days until the big day. But uh, just because we are the winners of the battle between turkeys and humanity doesn't mean that some of our closest allies, the dogs, are as ferocious in uh, as likely to win the fight versus turkeys. The headline reads, quote, dog turns into scaredy cat after friendly turkey starts chasing her around the pool area. So, yeah, you, you can hear how it's outlined here. This turkey is like, no, I want to be friends. Yo, come here. And the dog's like, uh-uh, not happening today. Uh, quote, the comical clip shared by Army Amy Harris showcases her pup, Stella, attempting to keep a safe distance from the persistent bird, aptly named Lurky. Despite Stella's efforts, Lurky keeps running after her, determined to catch up. One might expect Stella to pause and consider befriending the feathery companion, but perhaps that's an interaction for another day. And yeah, I, I guess Stella, she's just, she ain't having it. She is not wanting Lurky to be anywhere near her at this point. Maybe it's because she knows she doesn't want to get too close because Lurky may end up on the table for Thanksgiving. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a possibility. So with all that said, if you want to check out any of the photos or videos from this article or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.